What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In season two, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now your host, award-winning architect turned entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is Ting Chen, the founding principal at Linearscape Architecture, a New York City-based design firm focused on the interplay between landscapes and buildings. The firm was the winner of the prestigious Emerging New Young Architects Award and has been published in Metropolis Magazine. Ting is also an associate professor and co-director of the Bachelor of Architecture program at the New York City College of Technology. She began her career at HOK and TPG Architecture and is an alum of the Harvard Graduate School of Design and the University of Washington. We will be talking about Wild Walk, a one-of-a-kind elevated nature walk at the Wild Center in the Adirondack Mountains, upstate New York. More broadly, we will talk about the ways that buildings and landscapes can be integrated through thoughtful design. Thank you so much for being here with us, Ting. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So you are from New York City, but did your undergraduate work in Washington State, an incredibly beautiful and uh, wild part of the country. How did that impact your path into design and what are some of the earliest influences that you've had? So I was born in the Bronx, so far, far away from the Washington state. I was born in the Bronx and my grandparents were first generation immigrants. I was a city kid, but by the end of high school, I knew I wanted to be an architect and I wanted to be mm -hmm. as far away from my family as possible. Um, so I <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like your family's probably overbearing like yes. mine. Then, so. <laughs> <laughs> and too many relatives too close by. So then I went to the University of Washington uh, to be away from my family, but also because I wanted a change from the city. So I wanted to be in a more natural environment. And all of the studio projects at that time at the University of Washington were set in natural environments. And so my first project, my studio, my first studio project there was with the icon Frank Ching, where we had to, of course, hand draw our projects. And the first project was set in the forest. So we had to design a retreat for a family in the forest. And my last project there was to design a cemetery at a local park. And ironically enough, at my first job after the University of Washington, my first project at my first job was to design a funeral home. <laughs> so it's not exactly the path I had imagined, but anyway. <laughs> that's so do you know, yeah. 
What's really interesting is so I was in uh, Georgetown for about a week and a half earlier this month. And when uh, in the mornings, they typically go for a run. I had spent uh, time at the cemetery that's uh, next to Dumberton Oaks near the university in Georgetown. It's this rolling hills, really beautiful cemetery. And what I found really fascinating from the architectural perspective is that each of those grave sites are an opportunity for an architectural act on its own, because each of those places, whether it was a a simple sign essentially designating who was there to some grand construction that looked like a building on its own, allowed for uh, both an expression of personal taste of reflections of the styles of the time, and then also reflection of the skills of the artisan, typically in stone, uh, that was there. Mm-hmm. So I actually kind of in a morbid way kind of dig <laughs> walking through cemeteries. <laughs> so then you went from there to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and then you found your way back to New York City. Talk to us about that path for you in terms of your career and your life, the stages of your life along the way. Yeah, I worked for a couple of years after my undergrad. I worked for a couple of years at a local firm in Seattle um, to gain some practical experience, but I knew I needed more education and I really wanted to go to graduate school. Um, So I applied Mm -hmm. and I ended up going to the GSD in Cambridge, where obviously I learned to think at a much larger and more urban scale. And at the GSD, I was a part of a transitional generation where we were moving from hand drawing to computers. So I started at the GSD doing hand drawing, if you can imagine it. And then I graduated, obviously, using a computer. So this was a big change in how one approached architecture in terms of thinking and making. And then after the GSD, I got an internship working at Michael Van Valkenburg's office in New York City. And then I've been here ever since. I think that what you've described uh, is something so interesting about that transition of an education from hand drawing to online or computer aided uh, drawing. So Mijin Yoon, uh, who's the, or I believe until recently was the, the dean of the School of Architecture at Cornell. She was my professor in undergrad and she had talked about, yes, there is incredible power in computer-aided design to uh, be able to uh, develop and iterate and uh, design at a rapid rate. But there is something so personal, so human about the act of observing and drawing or thinking and drawing that I think a architect that doesn't have the capacity to draw, I don't think is the fullest version of themselves from a design perspective. Would you agree or disagree? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. That was very well said. I think, you know, when I look at, I'm also a professor. And so when I look at student work or even in architectural publications, you look at rendering after rendering after rendering, and they all start to look the same. But hand sketches are so individual. And so hand sketches always look different and you get a real sense of the feeling of the person who made the sketch. And I think that ends up influencing the um, architect's ultimate designs because you sense more of their persona, both through the process and then in the final product. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I just want to correct that uh, Mi Jin Yoon is uh, still the, the dean at the School of Architecture. And also she was uh, the first uh, woman that was appointed as the head of the Department of Architecture at MIT. So a really wonderful uh, architect. So you mentioned being a professor yourself at the New York City College of Technology. Uh, So help us understand what its mission is, its structure, and why you chose to take a role uh, as an educator. So the New York City College of Technology is part of the CUNY system. So it's a city university, and it caters to a diverse student body who's mostly made up of students who are their first in their families to go to college. So 33% of 
our students list their parents as college graduates. 62% speak a language other than English at home. 58% come from households earning less than $30,000 a year. 80% receive need-based financial aid and 25% work more than 20 hours a week in addition to being students. So this is a group of students who were really honored to pro provide access to an architectural education because these are students who might normally mm -hmm. not either know about architecture or have a path into the architecture and design profession. So I was working in a corporate office at HOK and uh, one time I just had a, mm -hmm. one day I had a really bad day and I went home and I applied for a teaching job because I wanted to get back into mm -hmm. academia and more conceptual thinking. Six months mm -hmm. later, I got the job and I've been there now for eight years and I love it. That's incredible. I think um, one thing that we have heard quite frequently through the second season of the podcast are architectural designers that feel a like a strong desire and a personal uh, goal of being educators as well. And they often speak of how being an educator has made them more competent uh, architects as well. Would you agree with that? Or what has your personal experience been? Yes, definitely. Because when I'm teaching design studios, I'm also practicing my design thinking because I'm having to critique 80 projects. <laughs> so that definitely makes me a better designer and a better architect in itself. And I think one thing I want to particularly point out is the uh, information that you shared about the students in your program. And particularly the 58% come from households earning less than $30,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that I thought of is, number one, oh gosh, do architects spend a lot of money every single year on the materials and the equipment that you need in order to actually function and be a part of a studio. That feels like hurdle number one for why people may not uh, start or may not even make it through an architectural program. Number two is this idea of, apprenticeship, which I think is absolutely valued but or valuable, but the fact that it comes at the price of a living wage. And I think in particular, uh, the move towards uh, unionization at shop architects, and they weren't the first one that's tried that, but uh, they, they did that. And I think eventually it was decided not to pursue uh, unionization. But I think the, the fact that, especially at the younger levels, uh, living wages aren't a common part of working at particularly well-regarded and prestigious firms is another hurdle to allowing the best and the brightest, regardless of their parents' economic situation, go through. And I think the last one that I can think of, and I'd love to hear from you after that, is the fact that someone is considered a, a young or emerging architect all the way into their 60s, which I think is code word for you're not going to make a lot of money until you're in your 60s. And I just don't know how you can, how you can raise a family at $30,000 in New York City. So help me understand how some of that stuff influences, say, the way that you operate your, your bachelor's program. Yeah, so if, if we start with the materials, a lot of students, you're right, cannot afford the materials that I was able to purchase going to college. Mm -hmm. And so we, we give them options. They can use recycled materials. They can use cardboard boxes from packages that they received at home. They can use paper towel rolls to make things. There's plenty of things around the house that, that we allow. Mm -hmm. Paper, right? Paper is a great example. We say we can, you can always make your model out of paper. So, and a lot of students do that. And then we also, our program happens to, we also try to combine both design and technology in our program to give students paths. Excellent. So they can become a designer at a big firm or they can become a technician at a more practical firm. Mm -hmm. 
So we teach them a lot of computer skills, how to use Revit, how to use building performance tools, how to use rendering tools so that they can come out and have a skill that's marketable right from the get-go. And I think in particular, I've uh, now encountered a three different Bachelor of Architecture students that I've had a chance to talk to recently that chose to minor in computer science. When I heard that the first time, I was like, what? And then the second time, I was like, wow. And the third time, I was like, yes, yes, more of that, yes. (laughs) So talk more about how you feel that technology is shaping the the architectural education and how someone can be a competent architect in the future. Yeah, so our students, you know, we have to teach our students I would just want to give them options. So if they, because I think the undergraduate education is mostly about telling students what the possibilities are. And so we we teach them conceptual design thinking for those who want to go down that path. But then we also teach technical tools for students who may not even like design. They may just like being involved mm-hmm. in the profession, but they're fine drafting and they're happy to learn how to use rendering tools again or building performance tools to contribute to the profession from a different perspective. Excellent. So you started Linearscape with your colleague, Rain Wong, and that's probably the most beautiful name that I've heard in a really long time, Rain. And so how did you meet her and what were your initial goals together in starting the firm? Yeah, Rain and I met together working at HOK and we were both working there and we were able to flip between both the technical and design sides of architecture. But at HOK, we were doing a lot of technical work. We learned a lot. We were working on really big projects and it was a great experience, um, but we both missed the design side of architecture. So to fulfill that, we did a lot of competitions on nights and weekends. And um, when we won the Enya competition, that kind of cemented our desire to work together to build a firm. And for anyone that may not be familiar with that Enya, uh, the Enya competition and that award, it's a really big deal. It's a really, really big deal. So that's incredibly impressive that that you and Rain won that award. So congratulations on that. Yeah. And our goal has always been to, to work on design-oriented projects that serve the greater good by connecting people to places and places to communities. Excellent. So Wild Walk. So Wild Walk is located at Tupper Lake in the Adirondack Mountains, and that's not far from Lake Placid, which is the site of a previous uh, Winter Olympics. We're in the midst of one right now. So uh, describe this region to us. Sure. The Adirondacks span more than 6 million acres, and it's the largest protected natural area in the lower 48 states. So amazingly, it can hold Yellowstone, Yosemite, Grand Canyon, Glacier, and the Great Smoky Mountains National Parks inside of its borders. Wild Walk is located, as you say, in Tupper Lake, and Tupper Lake is near Lake Placid, where the 1980 Olympics were held. The Adirondacks is about a five or six hour drive from New York City. And for me, it's where you are far enough away from the city where the natural environment really starts to feel wild, at least in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. Do you know if it really puts that in perspective, because I lived in Prospect Heights for a long time. And for me, Frederick Law Olmsted's design for Prospect Park was certainly wild, but in comparison, that's probably not the same caliber yeah. of what this is. But uh, I certainly can appreciate how valuable it is for anyone that lives in a city to have an opportunity to go to go outside of the city. And I'm sure over the past three years, many city dwellers that perhaps never imagined living in suburban or rural places have now had a chance to experience that because of geographic dispersion from cities. So the Wild Center is dedicated to connecting people with nature. Tell us about its start and how you first got involved with their work. Mm-hmm. The Wild Walk is part of the Wild Center, and the mm-hmm. Wild Center was initially started as the Natural History Museum of the Adirondacks. Mm-hmm. 
The idea for the museum began as a way to teach people about the Adirondacks and to explore the relationship between people and the natural world. So the museum began by starting a fundraising effort with a single letter that was mailed to residents in the area. That, and the letter offered a membership to the museum, which only existed as an idea. Mm. But through the letter, the museum was able to raise $500,000, which was a large sum at the time and for that area. Mm-hmm. And then with that money, the museum's board launched an international search for a design team and they chose HOK. Mm-hmm. So after a few years, the Wild Center wanted to grow. And so they decided to build the Wild Walk. And HOK decided that the project was too small for them. So a project manager who initially worked on the design, along with the original designer, the project manager, I should mention, is Wayne Stryker. And the original designer of the Wild Center was Chip Ray. Mm-hmm. So the three of us decided that we would work on the project on our own. So we took the project outside of HOK and brought the Wild Walk from schematic design through construction. So as you were getting started and the idea was being formulated, what was the specific prompt that the Wild Center gave you for the Wild Walk? Mm-hmm. The main requirements were that was that the project had to be integrated into the landscape. And the Wild Center wanted us to reference the traditional architecture and landscape of the Adirondacks. And really, they also wanted the project to be accessible to everyone. Mm-hmm. They wanted people with um, handicaps or disabilities to also be able to experience the the natural environment. The Adirondacks Park Agency required that the wild walk blend into the forest as much as possible and that it be minimally seen from the surrounding mountain peaks. Mm-hmm. The project was also funded by a lot of grants and individual donations, so we had to maintain the budget. And then we also wanted to source as many products as possible locally and use native vegetation. Excellent. And then the design process that you went through. So you had two colleagues that were from your firm, but this is the first time that you worked uh, together as an entity, perhaps separate from the the studio format HOK. So what was your design process in going through this project? So we, the original designer did a lot of hand sketches. Mm -hmm. And so he was always uh, issuing hand sketches. And then we modeled everything using Revit. And we modeled everything in 3D because the Mm -hmm. project is geometrically very complex. And so we modeled all the components, including all of the steel components in 3D um, to make sure that we were going to be able to build this and Mm -hmm. build it in budget and on time. Also, the time frame for building for in the Adirondacks is short because of the seasons, because obviously you can't build on the ground. Yeah. (laughs) So we had to get it done quickly. And so um, the fabricator fabricated everything in the shop ahead of time and then brought the pieces to the site and Mm. assembled them on site to get it done in one season. And help us understand the size and the scale of Wild Walk. So give us the numbers to be able to get a picture of what this is. So the Wild Walk is designed as an elevated trail of bridges that starts at grade and then eventually brings people 40 feet up above grade. Mm Mm-hmm. It's hard to calculate square footage. I actually have no idea how many square feet it is. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it starts at grade level and you sure. start on a platform. And then there's a series of bridges, which brings you up to, again, 40 feet above grade to look out over the forest. And along the way, you can stop and sit and observe the forest. There are also a series of bridges that swing to give you a little, to give everyone a bit of a thrill. Awesome. <laughs> um, that swing above grade and they bring you to what we call the snag And the snag Mm -hmm. was designed to look like a hollowed out tree Mm -hmm. where visitors can learn about um, what happens inside hollowed out trees when when trees are knocked down. There's also um, 
a life-size eagle nest at the top of the mm-hmm. wild, of wild walk that is made of real tree branches. And there's a spider web that's 24 feet above the ground where kids can climb, kids and adults can climb on. Awesome. Or uh, uh, adults masquerading as kids, otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> So I am going to take a break here to let our listeners know that we will be having Chalk live on the show next month. Chalk is the chief operating officer and a partner at Clear Mountain Capital. We will be talking about the Cedarview, a major multifamily project in Connecticut that integrates nature through its development. Visit AmericanBuildingPodcast.com to check out previous episodes And make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen. Redist is a new venture-backed technology company that is working to transform how public financing is used to encourage building construction across our country. The Commercial Observer recently said in an article about Redist, those public financing initiatives, though widely available, are often as difficult to locate as a truffle in a Norwegian forest, hidden deep below layers of city, state, and federal cloaks and daggers. Learn more about this powerful tool for the real estate industry at redist.us. Finally, for any person in real estate, looking good whether you're in an office or on a construction site is important. And I'm a huge fan of Mack Weldon's performance clothing lines, including their shirts, zip-ups, pullovers and tees, and I'm actually rocking some of their pieces right now. Check them out for yourself at macweldon.com. So, Ting, why did you choose the name Linearscape? Yeah, Linearscape came about pretty naturally. Uh, Rain and I have always been interested in connecting people to places. Mm -hmm. So we think this can happen at the scale of a building, a city, or a landscape. And so we like to say that architecture begins with drawing a line in the landscape, a physical line and a symbolic line that represents the movement and connection from urban environments to architecture, architecture to landscape, form to function, and from structure to tectonics. Mm -hmm. And we say this network of line interweaves to form a field of activities that together generate what we call a linearscape. So that's that's our kind of tagline. Mm -hmm. But in my own words, the linearscape has to do with a line that connects activities, and then the, mm-hmm. these activities form a, a linearscape, which could be a building, a landscape, or a city. Okay. And the idea being that it may not be just the idea of a, of a building being what an architect produces. It's the entire the landscape the, in terms of the site and everything that interplays with the buildings itself. Is that, that correct? That's correct. And then movement of people and the activities mm. that happen along the way. So if we reference Shumi a little bit, <laughs> mm-hmm. right, it's the, the movement of people and the place. Mm-hmm. That's an excellent point. So you've had the opportunity to work on master plans and also buildings in incredible pastoral settings. What have you learned from those projects about designing buildings within a natural context? Mm-hmm. The importance of time, seasons, and materiality. So in I think in a more natural context, mm-hmm. time feels slower. And so in the natural environment, we really think about how to connect people to the natural landscape, both physically and through views, by providing opportunities for people to move through the landscape in different ways and also see the landscape in different ways. Mm -hmm. So we try to design places that allow the space for people to contemplate and breathe, take a breath. (laughs) 
the pause. So then in comparison, how do you apply these principles to the more urban projects that you work on? The same philosophy, but in relationship, I think, to the urban landscape, which moves more quickly. Mm -hmm. So with these projects, we're always thinking about how to connect people to, in the case of an urban environment, the city. So how do how will people access the site? How quickly are they moving? Where are they coming? Where are they going from? What mm-hmm. happens along the way? Does the project call for a place to pause or do people need to get there quickly? Mm-hmm. So in the case of Symbiopia, the project that won the Enya Award, the mm-hmm. project site was a pier on the waterfront. And the pier is disconnected from the adjacent neighborhood of Washington Heights because there's an above ground train line that blocks the waterfront from the neighborhood. So what we did was we designed a landscape that would span over the railway line that would connect the neighborhood to the waterfront. And so with that, every you know, I think every project is different. And so we tried to develop solutions that are specific to the project and the place. Interesting. I think that the idea of how do you connect or reconnect aging transportation infrastructure to the urban fabric is something that is... It's something that I frequently in this season of the podcast from our guests, because I think this this older relationship or the older idea of mono uses is one that is starting to be broken apart, whether it's transportation infrastructure or buildings or landscapes. So I think that that project in particular was a fascinating one. And then you also were, I think you also had an opportunity to work on a reimagining of the New York City uh, street system itself as well. Could you talk about that? Yeah, that was um, something that we got asked by Metropolis Magazine to to envision. And so we were thinking about different ways to make the city more accessible. And so we thought about all the different types of people who use the city. And then Mm -hmm. we just went line by line. How can all of these people cross the street? How can we make that safer? How can we make parking a car safer? How can we make getting on a bus easier to get on? Um, And so we incorporated all these design elements to make the city more usable by everyone. So I think even for someone like me who considers himself a gold medalist uh, parallel parker, Uh I would certainly say that it's it's challenging Uh to to park in park on the street in New York City Uh and making that a safer process or an easier process will often lead probably to to safer situations for pedestrians and other folks as well. So recently, Curved actually did a reimagining of the street as well with an interesting collection of designers, including Ifoma Ibo, who will be on the show next month, and Jeanette Sadekan, who will be on the show in season three. And have you had an opportunity to see that article recently? I have not, but I will be looking at that as soon as we've finished. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'll send it to you. And could you imagine in the really beautiful work that you did for the streetscape and then in this more recent iteration of that What do you see as the challenges to getting something really brilliant and intelligent like that actually executed? What are the biggest challenges? Policy. So I think, you know, unfortunately, architects always like to dream big, but really I think we have to get involved with policy to be able to actually make change, which means getting involved with community boards, getting involved Mm -hmm. with government, getting involved with legislature. But we have to find the time, right? It's hard to do (laughs) it. I think that's true. And I think for for me, being a licensed architect, but then working for for myself in the context of real estate development and then technology, is I've been able to have the financial independence to spend time on being a city planning commissioner in Hoboken. And to give our listeners a frame of reference, 
the greatest social problem or urban problem that Hoboken has perhaps is a couple of potholes. That's that's literally the extent of the issues our little our little small, very wow. homogenous, okay. wealthy city has. And what I can observe is the folks that are from a design field. So whether they're engineers or they're architects, and I include developers because those are those are also very creative people of a different related realm that are on the on a planning commission or a zoning commission or city council can think very differently in terms of how our cities put to, are put together because the reality is that there are many things that come that need to happen in order for a building to get built or a project to get developed and i think uh, and i'd love to hear your perspective after your experience with the streetscape is it feels often that the the way that policy is written or the way that policy is talked about is that there's a zero-sum game, that if this one wins, this one has to lose. If this one to be, is to be good, this one has to be bad. And it seems to me such an unnatural way and not the way that architects really are taught to think. It's the idea of being observant and taking in many inputs to come up with something creative. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's hard for, a lot, for people to process variables. And yes. so I think through a design education, we yes. learn how to understand variables and process them and then integrate them. Um, but I think for a lot of people, they, they are more comfortable with black and white. So tell me yes or no, and it's easier, right? And so I think part of our job is to melt things down into yes or no, or to be able to present things in such a way, even though we're dealing with a lot of variables, but maybe to present the information in a way where people can just say yes or no. That's a really, a really great observation. And I think that too often, architects, we think of ourselves as people that practice a vocation. And I think in reality, it's exactly what you said, which is the core skill that you, me, or any of our listeners that are licensed architects have come to to gather and to build is the skill of observation and the incredible tool of problem solving. And what is so fascinating is then is when you take someone like us out of the context of a, of a building project or a building environment and say, make this affordable housing policy work. Or let's talk about the fact that maybe a quarter of New York City will be underwater within 20 years. Maybe let's, let's try to fix that one too. <laughs> and I, I think that it, it amazes me that there, at least from my understanding, not a single architect in either the US Senate or the US House of Representatives. How that could be is beyond me. But I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that perhaps architects are, are just so busy as it is to be able to do that. But I would note that uh, for folks that are, are interested in that, the AIA about two years ago launched a, an advocacy initiative. So they actually have a, a newsletter and I believe there's a text version of it as well, where you can um, be informed of important um, policy decisions or issues that are affecting architects to give you an opportunity then to contact your U.S. representative or your U.S. senator to say, you need to vote like this because I'm one of your constituents and you better listen to me because November is coming. <laughs> and the more and more I think that we do that as well, then we'll be able to show and flex our power too. Absolutely. So tell us about all this this amazing work that you've done so far, when you look forward in your career, what do you hope to achieve in this amazing arc to come for your firm and uh, for yourself? 
making change now that we're on this topic of change maybe maybe i should get more involved with policy <laughs> <laughs> no but really focusing you know when you start a firm you need to get clients and so you kind of mm -hmm. do whatever you can get and then as you start to grow you start to be able to choose how you want to apply your skills so i think the next phase is really getting involved with projects that are maybe not just to make money but are to serve the greater good and help communities so i think that's the next phase perfect so Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the American Building Podcasting. Thank you so much, Atif. Absolutely. And listeners, if you want to hear the behind-the-scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever it is that you like to listen. Rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience. And please follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Here from me, the team at Michael Graves and Redist, and many of our spectacular guests like Teng on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, Seven Tips on How to Stand Out in Your Field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Ting and I have made donations to the Department of Architectural Technology at CUNY to support access to design education for underserved populations. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building.